If you have a Bible with you today, I want to invite you to find Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, this is, uh, Matthew is one of the Gospels. It um, is the story of, of Jesus, and in Matthew, they kind of share a little bit of the Christmas story, all right? It's December, it's officially Christmas season. You can no longer avoid it. Thank you. My wife always says this. It's my wife, Emily. Thank you. The last couple weeks here, I don't know what has been going on, but my allergies are rough. And she's like, I'm going to start just walking up Kleenexes to you. Okay. All right. Uh, last week, we finished up our series on gratitude. You know, we were focusing on that in November. Uh, we had a lot of different things that we were doing to try and be intentional and to focus on God and to make uh, Thanksgiving just be different and important. And it, uh, if you really took everything to heart and you implemented all of this over the past few weeks, I'll be honest, it was probably an intense couple of weeks. There was a lot that we had on the list of trying to really focus ourselves. Uh, before that, we just got out of a series uh, uh, on mental health. Again, a very intense kind of uh, thing. And, and here's what I kind of was, was thinking as we were coming into the Christmas season. I'm like, you know what? We, just, we can't always be super intense. Like, that, that is very draining. We always want, we don't want to, like, be too relaxed. Like, we want to be pressing in and focused on God. But sometimes we get into these, these things and we're like, yeah, let's go, 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 go. Uh, and it can actually just even wear us down as we are trying to pursue God. And so we're moving into a Christmas series. And some years we've done things like we did at Thanksgiving where do this, do that, make, thanks, or make Christmas very focused and intentional. Uh, I'd encourage you, bring what you had from November into December. Just keep that going. Keep being intentional in your life. But what we want to do is uh, instead I, I want to kind of take a step back and just look at parts of the Christmas narrative that I think maybe we have not looked at real closely before. This might be something new to you. Uh, it's not going to be anything just absolutely, um, holy cow, I need to just drop everything and change my entire life. But I think that when we look at some of these things in the Christmas story, when they make more sense to us, it's going to bring the entire season and this story to a place where it is truly more important um, to us. And so that's what we're going to do here. Uh, we're going to do this for three weeks before Christmas. Um, and we are going to look at the three gifts that Jesus was given. All right, Jesus was given three gifts, and we are going to take a look at these, okay? Gifts are important. Gifts are intentional. They carry significance. All right, if the giver of the gift did a good job, the gift should tell us about the person who is receiving it. Right? Like, there, there are some people who are just like, yeah, I don't really even know what I got you. I just kind of ordered it. There are other people, they are thinking about it six, seven, eight months in advance. They're already buying your Christmas present for 2023, okay? Like, they are so intentional in this. And when that happens, the gifts are so specific. They have, they have symbolism. They have meaning to them. All right? And actually, the three gifts Jesus was given, they do speak about him quite a bit. Uh, they were very practical, but beyond that, they actually carried a deeper spiritual meaning, symbolism, and foreshadowing into who Jesus was. All right, so let's, let's dive into these gifts together this Christmas season. Uh, let's take a moment, just prepare our minds, our heart for what God has. Uh, if you would, if you're willing and if you're able, would you stand with me? We are going to read uh, just a short passage out of Matthew chapter 2 here, and then I'm going to pray and we will continue on. So we are in Matthew 2, starting in verse 9, a little ways in. It says, The wise men went on their way. This is after speaking with Herod. And the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother, Mary. They bowed down and worshipped him. 
Then they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Jesus, I pray that as this morning, as we read through this, and maybe for some of us, we've, we've read this so many times before, we've looked at this, God, that it would take on a new meaning, and, and in a way that it would, it would challenge us in a new way. It would make Christmas just something different this year, Lord, that we would see you in a new light. God, we ask that in your name. Amen. All right, you guys can have a seat. So we have these wise men from the East. Uh, we have talked about them in years past on our Christmas series. Uh, they, they are definitely not Jewish. They did not worship Yahweh, the God of the Israelites. Uh, and yet they play this really cool role in the narrative of the Son of God, the, the Savior, the Messiah's birth. All right, so understand this. God can use you no matter who you are. And really, even what we see, God can use you no matter what you believe. All right, God does not just use the people that have everything figured out and ready to go. And, and they bring these three gifts, uh, and that's really kind of the only reason. How many of you guys have a nativity scene at home? Anybody? Maybe you have it in your yard, you have a little one. How many wise men are there? Three. Always three. We actually don't know. Okay, it's, it's men, so we know there's at least two, uh, and probably less than 100. But we actually don't know. We just say that there's three because there's three gifts, uh, and that makes sense with your little porcelain set. All right, and so we, we have these three wise men, um, and each one of these gifts is unique, and it, it's definitely not your typical gift, all right, for either a young child or a new mother. There were probably more practical gifts. I think of, like, Mary's probably like, I really could have used some diapers, some wipes, like all these different things. I, I don't really know what you guys gave me here. I don't know what I'm supposed to do with this. All right, but these gifts, actually, they, they were very valuable, and they probably, uh, these gifts probably funded Mary and Joseph's escape to Egypt and their time there. Um, th these were probably sold, and that money was used for them to get out of there and, and to protect Jesus. Um, but uh, beyond that, each one of these gifts carries a spiritual symbolism in them. Okay, And today, I want to look at frankincense. We're going to start with this one. This probably isn't something that you're super familiar with, uh, maybe unless you're into like essential oils. Uh, and if that is you... I am not in need of any essential oils. You don't need to come try and sell any to me afterwards. Thank you. All right. I'm sorry. I'm... At this time, <laughs> at this time, frankincense was used in many ways. Okay. Uh, and actually, maybe a, a new mother really would appreciate this gift because it was used in both perfumes and in cosmetics. All right, it, it also, like, so whichever guy bought this, Mary's maybe like, you're my new best friend, okay? You keep bringing gifts every year. All right, and it, it also was used for medicine. Uh, there are writings from one of the leading Roman medical writers that says it was used to stop bleeding, cleaning wounds, curing hemlock poisoning, uh, among other things, okay? So this, this gift was very practical. They could use it in many different ways. It, was, it also was sought after just because of, like, it was used in so many different things that everybody would kind of need it. So it probably made it pretty easy to sell, actually. Um, and, and, but frankincense, it was something that also would be very well known to priests at this time. It was used by the priests twice a day for the incense that was placed on the altar of God. Okay, Exodus 30, verse 34, it says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, he's given him all these directions, gather fragrant spices, resin droplets, mollusk shell, and galbanum, and mix these fragrant spices with pure frankincense, weighed out in equal amounts. Using the usual techniques of the incense maker, blend the spices together, sprinkle them with salt to produce a pure and holy incense. 
So it's burned twice a day. And, and this is the application that really, right here, that priests would know, that carries the spiritual significance that I want to drill down on today. Okay, th this gift was meant to foreshadow the idea of Jesus as our high priest. All right, and maybe you've heard that phrase before, high priest, or Jesus as our high priest. Uh, maybe you haven't. Maybe you've really only heard the word priest in connection with, like, Catholic Church or, or something like that. Uh, I think by understanding the idea of priest in Scripture, it's going to allow us uh, to really understand what this means for Jesus to be in that role and then what it actually means for us as well. Okay, so quickly here, I'm going I'm to try and give enough detail for this to make sense and to keep us on track, but not so much to kind of bog us down. Because here's the thing about the Bible. Uh, scripture is absolutely amazing uh, how many little details are perfectly woven together to paint this big picture. Okay, and there are certain themes in Scripture that keep showing up uh, over and over and over, and oftentimes we miss those themes. Okay, and this idea of a priest is one of those themes. It's like if you're watching a movie and you keep, something keeps happening, and you're like, ah, they wouldn't put that in there if it didn't mean something later in the movie. Right? And all of a sudden there's this big reveal at the end, and you're like, ah, there it is. That's, that's really how Scripture was written. It's this one big story with these ideas woven into it. So priests were the people who worked in the tabernacle or the temple. Uh, really, though, like a more simple definition, uh, they were people who worked in and kept the sacred space where God was. Okay, or where heaven and earth met. And the tabernacle was one of the most sacred spaces in ancient Israel. Is where God lived on earth, where the kingdoms of heaven and earth met. It's where his presence was. And the tabernacle, uh, it had layers to it. Uh, the closer you got to the center, the more sacred that it was, okay? So you had the outer courts, and then you would go in after that, and you kind of had this entry room into the tent, uh, and then really in the center of the tabernacle was the Holy of Holies. And that was the most sacred space. That's where God's presence was, was at the very center here. And, and the priests, uh, they cared for this space. They offered sacrifices, prayed, and announced uh, God's blessing over people. All right, so uh, here's the other thing. The priests were representation of the people to God. All right, but they also, they, they represented God to the people. So they basically, what this means is they were like this bridge, this gateway, this mediator between the kingdoms. Okay, this is what a priest was. This is what their job was. Now, something you would notice about the tabernacle or the temple of Yahweh, the God of Israel, compared to other deities, other temples, other sacred spaces in this time, uh, was this. There was something missing that every other space would have had. And that was an, an image of the God. It was, all the other ones, they would have had um, these statues, these idols, the, these, these images of the God that you are worshiping, but... In the tabernacle, in the temple of Yahweh, this was not there. All right, and I want you to stop and think, like, why, why is that? Can you think of a reason for that, okay? Uh, and it's, it's because there actually already was an image of God there. Us. Because we are uniquely made in his image. All right, and so, so when the Ten Commandments talks about, like, do not make an idol, do not make other images, anything like that, like, yes, it does not want us to worship, uh, you know, those are put out there, like, we shouldn't be worshiping other gods, these other idols, anything like that, but it's also this idea of, like, don't mistake, like, this connection that we have there, like, you are the image of me, all right, and uh, so all the other places, they would have had these 
Um, but all of humanity is made in God's image. Now, here's the thing. We often think of priests as like these little temple workers or maybe the Levites from the tribe of Levi. And, uh, and, but the idea of priests actually came in way before that. It actually started at the very beginning. Adam and Eve were meant to be priests. All right? And I want to show you. Remember, priests are workers in a sacred space. In Genesis 2, we have the account of Adam and Eve, and they are in Eden. And Eden is this sacred space, all right? But then you have Eden, and then inside of Eden was the garden. And then inside of the garden, at the center of the garden, what was there? The tree. The tree of life. All right, and this is the most sacred space. And so really, when the tabernacle was made, it was made to mimic the creation. That we had this same idea there, that the sacred space was in the center. All right, and it was just like the tabernacle in that. They were trying to recreate the space of the Garden of Eden. And you see this when you actually read the blueprints for the garden. Uh, they're constantly talking about, like, carve this palm tree into that. And there's pomegranates carved into this. Uh, and, and all these different things uh, that you see throughout that. And actually the curtains that were leading into the different kind of places going into the tabernacle, they had cherubim on them. If you remember, what is at the entrance of the garden after Adam and Eve leave? Cherubim. Same, it was meant to transport you back to this place of Eden the way it was supposed to be. And Adam, which isn't necessarily a name, you know, it, it means, uh, just, it's Hebrew for man, and Eve means life. They, they are supposed to rule over creation. They are made in God's image. They represent God to the rest of creation, and they represent creation to God, just like what a priest does. And then God tells them to work and to keep the garden. And the words that are used here, as God says this, they are the exact same words that are used in the description of a priest to work and to keep the sacred space. They were to embody God's wisdom and rule here on earth as royal priests. Well, what happens? They, they screw up and they are deceived and they decide to rule on their own terms instead of God's terms. And ever since that moment, the rest of the Bible is God's mission to undo that tragedy so that humanity can once again rule with him, in partnership with him, and gain access to this place where kingdom of heaven and kingdom of earth meet. That's what the story of the Bible is. This is one of the themes that goes from the beginning all the way through the end. God's presence and ours being together in one place. And the way that that mission starts is God promises to Eve that one of her descendants will rise up and defeat the deceiver, but the deceiver will strike his heel. All right, he will offer up his own life to accomplish this is, is what's being said here. So we are looking down the road from this story on as we read the Bible. If, you, if we've been paying attention the way we should, we should constantly be looking for this future priest, this future person that's going to come in and restore this relationship the way that it is supposed to be. All right, so, so we're meant to keep that in mind. And every little detail, like in a movie, we see it and we're like, oh, is that it? Does, that, does this go with this same idea? All right, so fast forward. I'm going to do a couple of these real quick and show this. Abraham comes on the scene. Remember, this is before the Israelites. Abraham is the one that starts this whole covenant with God. God promises his family will become this great nation through whom he's going to work. He will bless everyone. They will be a conduit of God working through them to the rest of the world. They are this bridge, this gateway, these mediators. This image is that like basically Abraham's family is going to be a family of, of priests that are these mediators from God to the world. So the reader, again, we should be thinking that. Think back to this promise of Eve. Then in Abraham's story, he's coming back from winning a battle. 
In Genesis 14, Abraham has rescued his nephew Lot, comes back in in the land. He passes by a city called Salem, and the king of that city comes out to meet Abraham. But this guy isn't just the king. He's also, it says, he's a priest of the God Most High. He is king of this city, and he is a priest of the God Most High. Uh, And and this is kind of weird, because priests have not necessarily been given an official title like that. We are not that far along yet in the story. We are hundreds of years away from that. But scripture calls him a priest, and his name is Melchizedek. And Melchizedek tells Abraham, you won the victory because of God. And that's it. We don't hear anything more about Melchizedek. We don't know who his parents were. We don't know who his kids were. We don't know any of that lineage. And when that happens in the Bible, that's on purpose. We're not necessarily supposed to know that. Because when they want to know, when they want to tell you who someone's father is, they tell you who their father, grandfather, great-grandfather, great-grandfather, you know, like, we've all skipped over that part as we're reading through the Bible at different times, okay? I try and read them, and sometimes I'm like, not today. All right? And, and like, if the Bible wants you to know where someone came from and, and who comes after them, it tells you. So this, this guy shows up, and he's just gone. We continue in the story. We see that Abraham... Instead of trusting God for this big family who will bless the world, he takes matters into his own hands. Like Adam and Eve. We should be thinking about that. And he tries to start a family with his slave. Like most things, when we take control away from God, it goes horribly wrong. And then the result is God asks Abraham to sacrifice his son, the person who actually could start this future family. And this starts another theme to watch out for here, and it's this idea of, of sacrifice. That priests somehow, they're connected with this idea of sacrifices. Jump ahead to Moses. Moses is used by God to rescue a large family, Abraham's family, out of Egypt. They've grown into this massive nation. They are fleeing. They come to Mount Sinai, and God says he wants to make the Israelites into a nation of priests. Okay, Exodus 19, verse 5. Now, if you will obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure from among all people on earth, for all the earth belongs to me, and you will be my kingdom of priests. My holy nation. So this is coming, this is actually happening the way that we thought it it would. They actually get sort of like uh, scared in this moment though and they say, we we don't know if we want to do this. We don't know if we can have this relationship with with Yahweh. Moses, you do this for us. And and so Moses, uh, and actually Moses' brother Aaron becomes the priest. Okay, this is where the tabernacle gets built. Things get more formalized. This is where frankincense comes in. They have this special clothing, that the way they dress and, and everything. And, and Moses has this vision of a future priest in this moment who, who, who is shining bright. And, and it's, again, like the reader's supposed to kind of be looking, reminding us that someone's coming. There's someone in the future that this is happening with. Moses comes down off the mountain. The Israelites have made an image of God, a golden calf. God wants to destroy them. And just like with Abraham, we see a moment of of potential sacrifice. Moses offers himself as a sacrifice instead of the people. God wants to destroy them. He says, don't do that. Don't do that. Take me. And we see this this theme that pops up of sacrifice with self-sacrifice. And that this is what we're kind of supposed to see. We should think, like, that's the promise to Eve. That's, that's, That's better than what Abraham did. Then a couple chapters later, Moses is meeting with God, and when he's done, his face is shining bright. And again, you kind of think of that, that vision that Moses had. Very shortly after this, Aaron's sons, who are the priests, they, they try and start their priestly duties literally the first day on the job. Okay, we're in Leviticus, and I think it's chapter 10. First day on the job, they screw up. Massively. And they're killed. First day on the job. 
All right, and so what we, what we see in this story is we're like, okay, we got this priest thing going. That's what we're supposed to be looking for in the story. Okay, that went horribly wrong. What is going to happen? And again, you're like, okay, we're trying to figure this out. We're trying to understand what this priest thing means. All right, um, and it just, it didn't go well there, okay? So this is what happens, and, and we're always supposed to go back to this promise to Eve. And we're supposed to think, was this going to be that priest that we're looking for? And it isn't. The last example, fast forward, we see King David. David is a man after God's heart. He trusts God in a way that Abraham struggled to. He leads in a way that Moses kind of struggled to. And we keep thinking like, okay, this looks better. The next person is better. We're getting better at this. We might be getting closer to this, to this priest. Then David becomes king and he actually goes and he makes a new capital for God's people. And the city, do you remember what that is? The city is Jerusalem. Now here's the thing. This city, Jerusalem, is the same city that Melchizedek, Salem, that he was king and high priest over. Same city. So as you're reading this, you know, how many of us, we miss this. I miss this. This is not there. We, as someone who would be reading this through, you'd be like, wow, all the pieces are coming together. This looks like this should be happening. That's that same city that he was in. All these different things. Um, and... Uh, if you were someone following those details, your, your alarms would be like going off. Like, all right, here we go. David brings the tabernacle and the ark and he places it kind of on top of this hill. He's, he's dancing before it. He's even dressed like what a priest would be dressed like. And you have all these pictures. He gets up there and, and he begins to offer sacrifices. He's doing the things that priests would do. And in your head, you're like, maybe this is it. But instead, God promises that a future royal priest, the future ruler, will be one of David's descendants. Which is good because David screws up a lot as well. And then David writes Psalm 110 talking about this future descendant. And, and the psalm starts with this line. See if you can kind of recognize part of this. You'll, you'll hear it again later in the message. The Lord said to my Lord, sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies, making them a footstool under your feet. And a few verses down in Psalm 110 says, for the Lord has taken an oath and will not break his vow. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So David is writing this and he sees his future descendant somehow being tied to Melchizedek. And so you see this story that is weaving through scripture, all these details that were like, how does this make sense? It's still kind of blurry for us, but it's starting to come into focus. Then the last piece with David is yet again, it, he follows the pattern where uh, towards the end of his life, he's supposed to trust God. Instead, he takes a census and he counts all of the men that he has for war. And, and God becomes angry. He says, you're not trusting me. And in this, David says, hey, uh, don't, don't punish others. I, I will take this punishment on myself. And again, we see David in this theme of self-sacrifice show up. And all of these things would begin to just layer on top of each other for an original reader who, who would kind of pick up on these things. Are we seeing these themes like the whole time through this royal priest? Someone who can represent God to mankind and represent mankind to God. Someone who can follow through on what they're supposed to do. Someone who will offer themselves as a sacrifice in place of someone else. And this is all in the air if you are a first century Jewish person. And these wise men show up and they give this young child frankincense, a gift for a priest. And these themes continue with Jesus. 
Just like what Moses had seen with this bright, shining face. Jesus has the, the transfiguration that happens, and he comes down, and his face is bright and shining. And right away, you would be reading that thinking, oh, wow, this is it. This is the person. At Jesus' trial, when he's before the Sanhedrin, he quotes Psalm 110 back to the Sanhedrin. If you catch that when he says, and I will sit at the right hand. He is quoting Psalm 110 there, and I think we miss that. I, I know like when I read through those, I miss all the quotes that they do of the Old Testament so often. He's quoting that, and that's when they all freak out, and they begin to rip their clothes and say, this is blasphemy. Why? We don't need any evidence. We just heard it from his mouth. It's because Jesus in that moment is saying, hey, Psalm 110 that David wrote about this future priest that's supposed to be coming that all of us are waiting for, that's me. I am that person. And he's quoting this, we see this, and when Jesus dies, the curtain that is in the temple that separates the holy of holies, that place where God's presence is, where heaven meets earth, that, that curtain is torn in two in that moment. And now instead of just the high priest who could enter into that and be in God's presence once a year, you get this visual of it's open. God's presence is open for business. You don't have to walk through this curtain. You don't have to have all these different things. You now have access to God. And that's what we believe today, that we don't need a human mediator between us and God. Jesus is the high priest. He is the one who we go to. He is that mediator. He is the one that represents God to us. When we want to see, when we want to question, well, what is God like? What are his characteristics? What are his attributes? We look to Jesus. We can see that there. And at the same time, Jesus, in a way, represents us. Hebrews 4, the book of Hebrews, follows this theme of a priest in Melchizedek a bunch through the chapters. I challenge you, you want to have some good reading over the next few weeks here, and you want to try and understand this story better, go read through the book of Hebrews. Just read a few chapters a day. All right, and in, verse, in chapter 4, it says, So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. The high priest of ours understands our weakness, for he faced all the same testing we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy, mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. We have a high priest. We have this mediator, a bridge, and Jesus knows every single thing that we're going to go through. He is this, this representation of mankind, of humankind. But he's also our representation of God. And we stand together as we kind of just reach this place of closing here. I know you might be sitting here thinking, oh, holy cow, I don't know half of what was just said I knew that as I'm writing this message I'm like this is this is kind of a little bit I don't want to say all over the place because there's a very focused idea within here but how often do we miss these themes in scripture as we go through and we read and we don't we don't see these things and have you guys ever watched one of those movies like I have a few in my mind that like they have a big crazy twist at the end that you never saw coming but after it happens, you look back and you're like, oh, that movie was good. Because I can think of a dozen different things that were leading up to that that I just didn't even notice. I didn't even notice that guy was doing that right there. He was giving away the ending. Have you ever had that? And you're like, that was a good movie. I want to go back and rewatch it. 
That is what scripture is. We miss it because we, so often we lack the understanding that we need to see these pieces in scripture. And this theme of of a high priest and Jesus being a priest, in this moment we have the Christmas story and these wise men come together and you're like, okay, super random gifts, guys, thanks. Like, what's going on here? But when you begin to understand, okay, frankincense, this, this is an image of a priest. And to, to a reader who would have understood these, because a lot of this, we miss them because in our world, we have, we have translated from one language into the other. We, we are 2,000, 4,000, how many thousands of years later? Like, we miss some of these things. But to people that were reading this at that time, they would read this part in Matthew, and they would see that gift, and right away, those alarm bells would be going off. They're like, I know what's happening. I know what this means. I know who that child is. I want to do this for us. I want to just pull a couple things out of here and and maybe God was speaking to you something specific. Again, like I said, this is not going to be a series where we're just really trying to give you a one-two gut punch and change everything. You know, we want to just bring some some more light to this story and help help us really appreciate this Christmas story more. But understand this, we have access to God in a way that until Jesus came, none of creation None of creation outside of the Garden of Eden had this type of access that you and I have. Do we live our life in a way where we reflect a gratitude for that type of access? You know, you can take it further. We, every single one of us in here, we have a Bible in our language. You know, whether whether. Your, your language is English or Spanish or anything. Like we, we have Bibles available. There are people around the world that they do not have a Bible in their language. They don't have access to that. How many little things in our life do we take for granted of just being able to wake up and say, hey, God, thank you for the breath in my lungs. Thank you for waking up today. Thank you for the food that I have in front of me. You go back and read the Old Testament and what access to God looked like back then. I don't want to go back to that. Holy cow. The amount of things they had to go through just to spend time with their, their creator in, in this moment. But Jesus came and, and he gave us this access. Let's keep that in mind this Christmas season. Let's not forget that. Let's not miss that. You know, even if it's just for the rest of the month of December, just wake up every day and just tell yourself, like, wow, I have access to the creator of everything. I can call on his name and he is right there. How amazing is that? I think another thing that we can pull from this is is the calling of God on all of humanity is to be priests and Maybe you haven't heard it said like that before, and maybe that even in this moment makes you uncomfortable. Like, I don't want to be a priest. Okay, again, we're trying to redefine a little bit of what that word is. We have this calling to be a priest, and, and what does that mean? That means that we, we take care of the sacred space that, that God is in. And, and I want to say this, like, there are some Christians out there that, that the way that I've, I've heard their, their beliefs be put they just, they don't care about God's creation in any way. 
you know, and I, I, don't, I don't know why, well, I, I actually, I think I do know why we have a little bit of that mindset. But I, I think as Christians, we, we should be leading the way in this idea of like, God made this creation and it is beautiful. And it was for us to be part of. And we think of this idea of like ruling over creation and we take that to an extreme of like ruling as like a dictator. Like where do we ever see that type of ruling or leadership in the Bible, in God's plan? Ruling is this like self-sacrificial serving, like I'm there, I'm taking care of this, whatever you need type of thing. And and so when it comes even just to like our, our creation, our world around us, like I, I think some of us, we, we could maybe do a little better to say, hey, I want to take care of this creation. All right, and that's that's not a point that I feel like I really ever make in a sermon, but I just, as I was reading through this, I'm like, you know what, we, we need to realize that. We need to understand that, that we are to be stewards of this creation. It means the world around us, that means our bodies, that means, that means all of this. But we also are to be a representative of, of God to creation. And it might look like that, or it might look like people that right now are far from him. And this Christmas season, most of us in this room are probably going to be around family members. We're going to be around friends. We're going to be around people that maybe you haven't seen in a year or a couple years or a few months. And I think God has put you in their life for a reason. You are a representative. You are a mediator. You are a bridge, a gateway, whatever you want to call it, of God to them. They may never walk through the doors of a church, but they'll walk through the doors of your place of employment. They may never walk through the doors of a church, but they'll walk through the doors of your house for Christmas celebrations. And you are called to be a representative of God to them. I want to challenge you right now at the beginning of the month, begin to pray for family and friends that God puts on your heart that are far from him. Let's begin to pray right now and be intentional about that over the next month. I'm going to close us in prayer. Jesus, we, we thank you for this, this role of high priest, of royal priest that you have in our lives. God, even if it's something that we don't completely understand and it's, it's new to us that that, Lord, that we would begin to see uh, what that means and the impact that can have in our life and the fact that, that we, as well, are, are priests, are called to be these priests, that we have this access to you and that we are this representative. God, that we would take these ideas seriously. Lord, right now I begin to pray for family and friends that are far from you. God, some of us maybe have been praying over them for years, for decades. God, give us opportunities. Give us opportunities this month. Give us the words to say. Give us the actions to represent you in, a, in the best way that we can. God, we pray for stories to come out of this, this month of people just having a whole new outlook on you. Because instead of the incredibly flawed idea they maybe have of you, God, they they can see us. And yes, we have flaws, but God, they see you working through us in a way that goes beyond any of those. Lord, we ask this, this, this Christmas season in your name. Amen.